Testing, mic check. All right, we're good. Okay, you're listening to Fanatsu. This is an, an emergency episode, I guess. Um, it's been a, it's been it's been a roller coaster. It's been like what three three weeks now of like action packed, emotional anxiety inducing, um, legislative uh, rulings and what have you. So we're here, um, the Bald Men's League of Guam. We got Jesse. Uh, Metallic Sandalu and myself, led by by the hairiest of uh, of the four of us, <laughs> Miguel. So, anyways, no, I'm just <laughs> kidding. But so yeah, we're here. We're I guess uh, we're going to talk about the Davis case a little bit. Um, we have the General Assembly meeting tonight, and the whole. Uh, we originally had a, another topic scheduled. Um, Metallic Sandalu was actually going to lead the whole thing in tomorrow. I understand, right? Was that was that what the plan was? Or I'm, I think I'm going to help him. Yeah. So. So, but it, it was supposed to be about a constitution building, but um, because of all all the crazy things that have been been going on the past couple of weeks, um, mm-hmm. we decided it's probably better for the community and for ourselves if we unpack um, the the Department of Justice's ruling on the Chamorro Land Trust Commission, um, the district court's ruling on the Davis versus Guam issue, and not only that, but um, now, the legislative commitment to protect Native rights. So, this is all happening in quick succession, and um, we're here to try and process all of that before tonight's meeting. So, Yeah, this is... Uh, it really sucks that all this happens is happening during tomorrow month, because this is the month when... This is the month when you're supposed to wear your, you'd be able to wear your Hawaiian print shirt to work every day without anybody making fun of you. This is when you're supposed to be able to to just enjoy your 19 different types of Keleguin that you can make. Huh. This is when you should be able to kind of be a Chamorro and, and worry less about things such as genocide and racism and sort of you're losing your, your homeland and your place in the world. And so we really have to thank sort of the, the good uh, Judge Ty- Francis Tidinko Gatewood for sort of, because, you know, this, this, this decision was many months in the making, and then to bring it right in the middle of Chamorro Month, right in the middle of Mess Chamorro, it's, it's uh, a special gift for the Chamorro people. But um, it's good, to, it's good to, to kind of see the response that has happened, though. I mean... For the first couple of days, I know a lot of people were really uh, confused, angry. Um, some people just felt like, well, we should just kind of give up. You know, the feds have spoken. Uh, we don't have any rights. We don't have any place in this world. But it was good to see then um, people kind of bounce back. And some of our leaders uh, in particular, I have to give a shout out to Vice Speaker of the Guam Legislature, Therese Terlahi, for just kind of you know, you know, putting it out there, two different resolutions calling on the Guam legislature, the government of Guam, to support 
Chamorro Land Trust, the Chamorro Right to Self-Determination. And because um, um, it was really needed because you had people, if, if you were following social media, you had people going all over the place kind of in there trying to process what had happened, trying to process what it means. Um, you know, just in, just in that week, uh, I had people, you know, Chamorro teachers coming up to me. They were worried that, that kind of Davis was going to target the Chamorro language programs at, in, in Guam DOE. You know, people worried about Ch- Department of Chamorro Affairs because, you know, this is a – for some – it's interesting because for some, the issue of Chamorro self-determination is very abstract. But then once somebody tells you that you don't have the right to it, then it starts to feel very real because you realize that that sort of – you take for granted that this island is yours and you f- take for granted and don't think about the fact that the United States says it's theirs. And this court decision basically says that Dave Davis, that this island is just as much his as any Chamorro person's. And that should that should definitely scare you because that's – we've seen that happen around the world. We've seen that happen in the United States where basically um, people who come much later find ways of delegitimizing, of – neutering, neutralizing of slowly like a like a horrible, depressing, vile magic trick making your claim to the land disappear. It gets lost in all of this like vaporous legal nonsense. And then suddenly you look around and after calling this land yours for thousands of years, you look and there's all of these people standing around you who feel like it's theirs. It's a uh, so I think a lot of the drama, a lot of the tension came from feeling those sorts of things. And even if, even if you don't articulate it the way that I did, using like sort of like fancy silly words, like a lot of Chamorros felt it. They felt worried and concerned because, you know, Davis Davis can come here and he can kind of fight for his quote unquote rights, but Davis can go back to the States and he can live on the stolen land there and pretend that's his. You know, the Chamorro people can't really do that. And so it's really, it's, I find it fascinating that all of these legal fictions that the United States has created over the past two centuries, then that, that kind of uh, weighs more or matters more than just basic common sense. <clears throat> Yeah, um, I think also that you know that that feeling of being being lost and not knowing how to situate yourself. Um, that's it, it. Feels like a react a necessary and reactionary uh, um, force to um, the suppression. You know, and it, it's so surprising to me almost uh, because um, after I filmed that that Ned Pablo video and uh, I just I put it up. Um, on native perspectives, I wasn't really expecting much. I mean, we obviously have our our circles, and we know almost everyone in the activism realm. But um, I woke up the next day, and it had gotten like already twenty or like twelve thousand um, engagements and stuff. And just scrolling through the through the um, through the comments, uh, one there there are trolls. There are trolls there. Um, probably like white, white nationalist dudes who are like, "Yeah, I told you, man." 
these guys are racist. Like, you know, just coming up with like all, all these like crazy things. But then on the other hand, on the other side of that, there was also uh, native people who were stepping up and like, this is, you know, like uh, they were stepping up and, and taking a stance, like people who probably um, didn't feel one way or another about a political status. But now, um, now that these tensions have been brought to the surface again, um, they've been able to situate themselves and make a stand for themselves and their families. So, yeah, I, I was really, I was really amazed by some of the legislators when um, uh, they, when they supported uh, Teresa Lahi's, uh, her, what is it called? Resolution. 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 Yeah, there were some legislators that really surprised me. Uh, um, maybe it, it, maybe that says something about my my lack of knowledge about uh, their backgrounds or whatnot. But like for for instance, um, uh, people like Will Castro. I mean, I had no idea that in his uh, in his office there were um, prior Ch- Nashon Chamorro uh, um, activists there. So it was really cool to see him come out and support like that. And it's a, uh, I mean the the day that you're talking about the public hearing for Resolution fifty one and fifty two. It was a very important day, um, important for, for a number of reasons, but, you know, it really shows you the power of, like, of the, of the people, you know. And what you, we saw was kind of the leaders who may not have been, you know, may not have kind of, maybe some of them didn't feel that strongly about it or weren't particularly well-versed in it. I'm sure a number of them felt kind of like we should just not appeal let's just forget about it let's just go with the flow it doesn't matter we've lost i'm sure though after sort of listening to dozens of people testify very passionately um and articulately some you know there was a wide diversity of thoughts in there everyone though was supportive of the idea though that native rights indigenous rights chamorro rights are important and so at a minimum, though, every kind of senator there had to realize that, had to see that, and had to think, I got to, you know, I got to get on the right side of this. Can't, you know, with this much, I mean, <clears throat> you know, you have to be a Republican in the United States Congress to avoid that much clear public outcry. Hmm. I mean, only sort of, or Donald Trump to kind of dismiss that much, because, you know, Donald Trump somehow thinks that. The hundred thousand people that went to his inauguration are far less than the three million people that marched against him, and in the in and in the name of of women's rights, <laughs> the day before. Like, but here on Guam, we could see that sort of the the senators, many of them weren't sure how to feel or how to proceed. But after seeing that much public support, it's clear. Like, we need to take this seriously. Like, we need to take this seriously, and. Um, I'm hoping, though, that they continue to. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm hoping that they do because uh, decolonization is something which hasn't been seriously dealt with at the government level for quite a long time. You know, the, the current governor, um, he makes, you know, he, he gives nice speeches every once in a while. He is the first one in a long time to put up some money for education. But... And so we have to give him credit, especially for that. But when we think about what it would take to undo centuries of colonialism, what this administration has done falls 
like hopelessly short. Like, um, and so hopefully one thing that can come out of this is that our leaders can just really kind of get serious on this issue. Because the Trump administration is exposing all of these problems with our relationship to the United States. You know, because before Democrats or Republicans, whoever you are, you're invested in maintaining the status quo for the most part. You know, you'll find your ways to kind of push through something that you like. Um, you know, you'll lie to the people <laughs> when you'd like to. You'll, you'll bomb other countries. You'll do all this stuff. But with Donald Trump, we have somebody who just seems so disconnected from the world doesn't want to play the usual game that makes everyone feel safe and comfortable for the most part. And so now it's really revealing that our relationship to the United States is really tenuous. I mean, if he pushes through the, the, the budget cuts that he wants, uh, Guam will suffer a great deal. Um, and the thing is that, that that was always there, that reality, that fact that we could suddenly lose all this funding has always been there. Right. But people have just chosen to trust that Uncle Sam gave us spam after World War II, gave us Coke and cigarettes and chocolate bars when we were standing naked in Meningen after being liberated by the Japanese, and Uncle Sam will give us quest cards and will give us student loans and it'll all be okay. Mm-hmm. And so you don't think about the fact that what Uncle Sam gives, Uncle Sam can definitely take away. And you got to wait until some pussy grabber comes along and basically says, you know what? You know what America needs? More coal mining. <laughs> you know what America needs? <laughs> it needs like a, a bigger military to win the wars of Trump's imagination. He's going to get this bigger military and then he's going to bomb the New York Times. <laughs> you get this bigger military and he's going to drone strike Rosie O'Donnell. It's like... It's 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 kind of pathetic. I mean, I do not want to know what history will will write about this time in the in world history. Like history books will say, yeah. And then there was this one time that this kind of possibly mentally handicapped person who, for some reason, had a lot of money and had a really bad comb over, became in charge of half the world's nuclear arsenal and the world's largest military. We're not exactly sure why. Anyways. But um, so I digress. Yeah, you know, it seems like um, a lot of people's a lot the the source of a lot of people's troubles uh, conceptualizing why uh, the ruling was morally wrong is because for decades, um, I guess over a century, maybe even uh, we've been indoctrinated into believing that um, we are American, we are equal to Americans in. Uh, the continental U.S., and that's just not true. And um, also, like, uh, constitutionally, there's uh, the framework of civil rights. Um, so can you talk a little bit uh, about where where American civil rights and um, the issue issues of native rights and human rights uh, diverge? Yeah, it's... I mean, this is the problem with American jurisprudence, is that for horrible things that the United States has done don't look to the system for justice because the system has been very good at the pa- in the past of simply covering it up or ex- excusing it away, finding some legal fiction to justify it. And that's what we have here. 
The United States has colonies. It's had them for quite a long time. The United States prior to that displaced Native Americans and took their lands. And instead of then looking back at a certain point and thinking, man, that was really fucked up that we did that. Wow. Man, our grandfathers were total assholes. Instead, a Supreme Court comes along and basically says, well, you know, Native Americans, they're really just domestic dependent nations, which means they fall under our purview. They fall under our control, which means, yes, at one time they were sovereign, free people, but now we own them and we own their land. So instead of confronting the injustice, acknowledging it, you basically create a legal fiction to justify what you did and then move forward with those that you have wronged as, as new footnotes to your empire. And here we have the same problem. So civil rights cannot be a remedy for those who have been wronged in this way because civil rights refer to those who are within society, right? You are a full member of society and you are, even though you're a, a full member of this polity, you are being discriminated against because of something about you. That's not the case here. The case here is that the United States purchased Guam from Spain, and Spain took Guam from its native people. And the United States then has an obligation to support the decolonization of the colonized people of Guam. Now, there's clearly different law about how to go about that. But the United States doesn't want to engage in that. The United States instead develops a legal fiction, these, ins these insular cases, these insular cases which don't make any sense if you think about it, don't make any sense except in terms of sort of taming the alien races of the past and then taming the alien colonies of today. That's what they're there for, is to basically make it so that you can hold on to something and you can profess that you are still a principled, ideal-driven ideal country while you deprive them of those very things. That's what the insular cases are. It creates a very formal way of oppressing and discriminating. It sounds really nice because you've got Supreme Court justices' names attached to it. You've got all these fancy court footnotes to, to explain it. You can come up with these concepts. People can write articles about it. But ultimately, though, if you just think about it for a second, if you step out of the courtroom and think about it, it's BS. It's nonsensical. It doesn't make any sense. And so this is, so this is, um, this is the problem, is that there are clear laws and conventions for remedying what Chamorros have gone through. The United Nations has plenty of stuff plenty of conventions, plenty of resolutions, plenty of recommendations on what is supposed to happen next. But the U.S. court system and the U.S. Congress will always resist those things and always try to find something within the United States which will justify continued control, even in the name of decolonization. So that's why if you look, you know, the Democrats, for example, uh, in their platform every four years, they say they support self-determination for the territories. The Republicans oftentimes say they support self-determination for the territories too. Republicans in the last convention 
presidential convention, though, noted that they support self-determination within the U.S. system, which means nothing except more inclusion, nothing else. And Democrats never... I mean, Bernie Sanders, however, in his platform last year, he acknowledged, though, that he would support whatever the people in the territories want, Mm -hmm. which is a divergence, because Democrats are usually vague. They say they they wholeheartedly support self-determination, but the caveat, the quiet caveat, is that it is, it is not independence. It is something where we still control you. Bernie Sanders did, did kind of create a small break there where he said, whatever they want, they can have it. <clears throat> but, um, but we can see these. That's why, that's why I was just, I was just so uh, disappointed in. Uh, I, I understand the restrictions that a federal judge has, but just. The fact, though, that that Justice Tidinko Gatewood did not use this as a chance to bring in to bring in sort of the larger conversation about decolonization, but instead to just narrowly interpret this based on voting rights. Like the U.S., the U.S. does not have any sort of real relevant case law on decolonization plebiscites, mm. and to just use voting rights which are about regular charter elections for or referendums to use those to try to interpret what a decolonization plebiscite is is something that even a kindergartner who is obsessed with picking their nose and eating their boogers should know is not the same so there was definitely a chance for her to to step up and because i've i've read on uh, social media a lot like um like people defending uh, Frances Tidinko Gatewood saying, oh, you know, she's she's a federal judge. She had her back up against the wall, but there was an opportunity for her to, um, you she know. Could. It's, you know, the issue is you, you don't want to be overturned. I mean, even the guy that Trump has nominated to the Supreme Court, he's testifying in the U.S. Senate right now, and the Supreme Court just unanimously overturned one of his decisions. And you don't want that to happen, but you want to, because... Every decision by a judge now, because for for this it's very different, because there's not a lot of there's not a lot of uh, precedents here which are actually relevant, because you look at you look at Dave Davis's case. Dave Davis's argument is almost completely in denial about what Guam is or what has happened to Guam. Dave Davis's case is all about cherry picking certain things and then talking about how um, black people were discriminated in the in the South, and then now Chamorros are discriminating against white people in Guam. Like citing all of these cases, which which make sense within a voting rights constitution constitutional perspective, right? If you're talking about those Fourteenth and Fifteenth Amendments, sure they make perfect sense. But all of that, but the fact of the matter is that if this is a non-binding decolonization plebiscite, none of those things should be relevant. None of those things should make sense because clearly that refers to a particular type of voting right. And, And so I argue, I mean, I know that some people have told me that because of the, the Davis case and the CNMI, like she was restricted because she has to follow sort of a certain certain precedence within her district. But 
you know there was still there was still chances because you know the judge makes an opinion she she makes her decision and she can nonetheless give us openings in which we could try to basically we could try to put a story of our, our of our struggle of what of our rights to put a more international perspective on it but when i read it i was like oh man this is the most unimaginative thing that you know this is this is really and it's it's unfortunate but that's what a federal that's what a federal judge i would expect to do and the only hope was that it would be somebody who is chamorro who should be a little bit more familiar or sympathetic that might be a little bit different but anyways i mean perhaps she did think about some of those things and there are some there is some stuff hidden in there which we can help but for my first read i didn't i didn't see it yeah okay so since the since the ruling and the resolution um there's obviously been a certain um uh, local leaders who have gone and uh, taken their opinions to social media as to what the the best options uh, should have been or, you know. So one of the things that that I I know I've seen just from paying attention to the news is uh, Calvo's uh, two-ballot vote proposition. And then in the wake of that, there's also support by certain legislators uh, for that two-ballot voting solution. and I've also spoken to uh, one uh, constitutional um, law expert, uh, um, one Ron Rob Rob Weinberg. So, anyways, and and he he has expressed uh, off the record just his his support for it. And uh, superficially, uh, he said he he hadn't done any um, actual uh, investigation into what that would entail in the long run. So, could you maybe um, could you ponder what 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 would happen if that were to, to take place why why is it still problematic it's um i mean it, it's problematic for for a number of different reasons it's it's part of it is hinged on this assumption that like if you just as long as you don't restrict people voting then it doesn't matter whether it counts or not right because um in in voting rights law there's you know, there's certain things where you cannot restrict somebody's access to vote, but that doesn't mean your vote has the right to be counted. So part of it then is saying then that, well, we'll let everybody vote, but we will only make it so that certain votes count. Now, I'm almost certain there would be legal challenges to that as well, not necessarily from Chamorros who want to limit it, but even from those who basically say, what is this half measure? If you're going to let us vote, then it needs to count. And so part of that then becomes how you write it so that you can justify having two votes and having one of them simply, one of them not really count. Now, if it's, if it's non-binding, then it, it runs into the same sort of problem. But basically what you would have is you would say that these colored ballots are more non-binding <laughs> than these colored ballots that are less non-binding which doesn't really make much sense. And so there would most certainly be other challenges. And then the problem is, what would you do with the results? Because it's one thing if you have a vote in which you basically argue these are, those, these are the people that have experienced the injustice, the harm, 
these are the ones that symbolically get to take an act to self-determine now. And therefore, even if other people don't like it, there's a logic to it. Having everybody vote and then basically saying, thank you for your vote, it doesn't count. These only count. There's, the own, there's, there's no real logic to it except to avoid the unconstitutional issue. Because if you only think of it in terms of this helps us dodge the federal court, it doesn't make any sense otherwise. Because basically what happens if they disagree? What happens if they disagree? Then you have set yourself up for actually more problems. Because it's kind of, it's kind of like saying, you know what? Because this is the problem, is if the court has argued that a self-determination plebiscite is exactly like a regular vote. Imagine what it would be like if we had that. If we basically made it so that we're having the vote for governor and all of you people get this colored ballot and all of you people you get this other colored ballot, so who do you want for governor? If you chose two different people, then it's hell. It all breaks loose. If you vote for the same people, then it's fine. So it's it's a big it's a big gamble and it doesn't I mean it doesn't really pass the it's it's something that you undertake just to avoid the the question of constitutionality and the question of discrimination it doesn't really make any sense otherwise because you are inviting more problems it's if you just have the vote and it's very simple and certain people are excluded from it, only certain people are included, there's still a logic to it. And people, some people may not like it, but it makes sense. And you can try to help people understand that. But if you tell them, let's all vote together, and then yours doesn't count, where is the sense in that? It's kind of like, yeah, it's kind of like when you invite somebody out to dinner and then you make them pay for their own food, even though you totally invited them. It's kind of like, oh man, thanks. We're gonna, thanks. I've I've never eat here. This is so awesome. What? I gotta pay for my own food? Fuck that. What? <laughs> it creates problems because the surface appears like it's one thing, but then still, in order to try to split the difference. So I don't think, for practical terms or in terms of principle, that it's necessarily a good idea. I find that a lot of politicians are proposing it just because it's pragmatic. Not, and they're not even thinking about what it would actually mean to implement it. And so I, that's, always, that's always the problem is that as a politician, you are always drawn to pragmatic solutions because it seems like if there's a big issue, like you can just find like – you can just like offer like one simple pragmatic sounding thing and then that's your talking point for it even if it doesn't help in any way, if it's pragmatic. So, you know, so for example, like a, a senator who's saying that we should go to the United Nations instead of appealing the Davis case. I mean, it, if you're, it sounds pragmatic, but it doesn't make any sense because going to the United Nations, we go to the United Nations every year. And if you want to engage in explicit legal mechanism, legal forums at the UN, you, they usually want you to exhaust your your options 
with with your colonizer within your country first, which means that if if that senator really wanted us to go to the UN, to the International Criminal Court of Justice or one of the permanent forums there, you got to appeal first. <laughs> you got to appeal first and you got to lose and you got to show that that I have tried to work with my colonizer and there is mm. no there can be no remedy here. And then you appeal and then you have a stronger case. If you just kind of lose your case and then you go straight over there, they say, did you appeal? You got to try to work because that's the thing about the UN is that the UN does not necessarily like to impose things on countries. It's, all countries are supposed to voluntarily follow conventions and laws. Um, and so so even even in something like decolonization, the process is that they are supposed to work with you to decolonize. They are supposed to work with you. <sighs> so it would sort of be like um, going to Revintax without your mayor's uh, certification <laughs> to get your driver's license renewed, right? That's, yeah. what, that's what would happen. Y- incomplete documentation. <laughs> yeah, gotcha. You know, that makes... Thank you. That makes so much sense now. Um, that, that's, a, that's a question I've been having trouble answering for myself. So, yeah. So there, there's a due process there. And um, you must first exhaust the, the, um, the possible solutions within your nation state before you take it to the international courts. It's, it, it shows that because it's, yeah, as you said, do dil- you do your diligence mm-hmm. in terms because you don't want to, yeah, because going to the international level is extraordinary in many ways it makes a bold statement now it's insanely difficult it's insanely difficult to try to get something at that level because if we were trying to to basically pick a fight with i don't know what's a really small country central african republic it's probably it's probably way bigger than guam and not that small but anyways if we were trying to pick a fight with like guiana <laughs> With, yeah, with Djibouti, with Djibouti. <laughs> Going to the international level is, is very possible because you get large allies on your side and there's pressure. Going to the international level, if it's any of the large nations, especially those that are on the Security Council, the permanent members, it's, it's very difficult to get anything because the parts of the UN which have the, the, the teeth are the ones where the most powerful countries have their means to shut anything down. Um, so the UN route is possible, but it is, it's a game which Guam has not played before. And it's a game in which there would be a lot of, a real steep learning curve. We would have to really do a lot of work. It's not easy. And so that's the thing is that when all of these kind of leaders and all of these people are like talking about all these different options, I understand that we're trying to figure out what's the best moving forward, but like first step is you got to learn, you got to know what you're talking about, and then you make a decision. That's why when I spoke at the legislature, I appealed the need to to have like a plan and a goal and a vision, and then to be consistent. Because in something like this, consistency doesn't seem important right now, but in the long run, consistency and having that vision can really help you. Cool. And so part of that consistency of, is, of course, uh, having this resolution in law now. So that lays the framework for um, uh, whatever uh, 
legislators come into office next. So regardless of that, they sort of symbolically have to follow this framework. Yeah, so. I mean, it's true. It's it's really just, yeah, that Mike's, Mike Phillips, excuse me, Mike Phillips at the hearing over Resolution 51, you know, he said it's really important that you that you be on record never consenting, never giving in, because he he told the story, for example, of how when Angel Santos was trying to get his family's land back from the military, you know, most members of the family never cashed the checks that they got from the military because they found it insulting or they wanted the land back instead. And so they were trying to win the court case in court that they should get the land back and what was used against them was the fact that some of the family members had cashed the checks, which implied they accepted it. Mm-hmm. And that was in that was in Mike Phillips said that was one of the key things that, in a sense, lost it for them. Because if you consent, if you say it's okay, if you, it may not seem like a big deal in that moment, but in the long term, in the long run, it can come back to haunt you, especially if there's a. Uh, unfriendly system that is looking for any reason to deprive you of something. That's why this is a difficult sort of game, and you have to be much better because you don't. You have far less power. <laughs> hmm. Okay, I have to step off for a little bit. Um, so I rejoined the uh, the. Um, I'm a wage laborer now, uh, supporting <laughs> capitalism. And um, I now have two cell phones. One is a, a work-issued phone, and uh, that has gone off twice. And um, for the past uh, 30 minutes, I've been like, you know what, fuck it. But we'll see. Uh, Matalk Sandali, do you have anything to say about uh, the recent events? Uh, <laughs> I've been kind of tuned out, honestly. <laughs> I'm sure Mia said everything. <laughs> it's true. Very thorough. Uh, I don't. I don't think I have anything to add. You're basically recording me say I don't have anything to add. <laughs> it's okay. Actually, you stepped out of the room, so it's a it's a it's a free statement. hot mic. It's a yeah. I know. Let's um. While Manny is gone, we can discuss his fashion choices for the. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> well, we we can definitely discuss. Uh, you know, with his increasing. Uh, political radicalness i would say his his hair has gotten shorter and shorter <laughs> yeah i don't know if it's on some uh, is it some like radical philosopher workout plan or something or it's quite is it, possible yeah it could also be like perhaps this is causing him to manifest some sort of hyper masculinity mm. you know <laughs> or increased increased sort of neurotransmitter usage oh. leads to balding professor mm. professor charles xavier <laughs> yes, there we go <laughs> But it is. I do. Uh, I do really enjoy Manny's increasing radicalness because he, on Facebook in particular, he's always posting those sassy socialist memes. Oh yeah, those are hilarious. <laughs> and, and it's like it. It really brightens my day because I am friends. I have like a lot of friends on Facebook, and I have no idea who they are. My policy is: if you have mutual friends with me, then I add you, <laughs> <laughs> which which helps me avoid most of the spam accounts. But and so I have like a ridiculous amount of older Chamorro friends who who really like conservative Fox News Trump mm-hmm. shit, and so it sucks sometimes. Like I I, I wake up in the morning and I'm looking. 
and then there'll be like there'll be all of this stuff. There'll be somebody who's like, see, Trump is right. <laughs> and then there'll be somebody who's like, lock Hillary up. And then and then somebody else who will be like, prayer in schools, pray for it now. And then I'll be like, oh, man, maybe I should go back to sleep. This is I'm, – I'm in the dark ages here. I should go back to sleep. And then, and then I'll see one of Manny's sassy socialist memes and I'll be like, oh, take me back to grad school. <laughs> redeemed. Day redeemed. Day redeemed. I know, again. But that is like just the – oh, man. Should get you in on the, the memes we share with each other. Oh, yeah? Via messenger. <laughs> <laughs> there needs to be – and what's it called? I need to. I need more. If there's anyone out there who is not, who is an older Chamorro person who is more liberal or progressive, please friend me on Facebook. I need a balance. <laughs> I need a balance because there's just too many, too many damn people. Like, what's it called? I don't. I, I don't even know some of these. Some some are some Chamorros have random stories. Like, there's this one guy who friended me on Facebook. He's like a fourth Chamorro. And he lives like in Croatia or something like that. Really? Uh, yeah. And he he is he lives inside of like the Infowars Alex Jones butthole. Oh no! Like he <laughs> shares the most insane things. Like he shares stuff that says that Hillary Clinton evidence Hillary Clinton murdered one of her staffers, and I'm like, whoa! <laughs> I better not click on this because it'll give Putin my laptop if I click on this. <laughs> and then he'll share something like Obama did wiretap Trump. Evidence here, you know. And he shares like every fake news, clickbait thing imaginable. And I don't know how a part Chamorro person ended up in Croatia. I don't want to message him because I think if I do, he'll have my bank account or something like that. <laughs> I'll get my bank account number. But So if you are a progressive, older Chamorro person, I, there's a couple of you. And, I, and I, treasure, I treasure those of you. There's a couple of older Chamorro people who are there. my friends on Facebook. And thank you for fighting the good fight to keep my feed sane. <laughs> my Facebook feed sane. I guess you're gonna have to go back and listen to all the really profound points that I made. Yeah, we we were talking about your your scalp. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> nice. Okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna tattoo it. <laughs> I've thought about that before, actually. <laughs> yeah, but have you done it with a guitar string attached to a, a toothbrush, uh, an electric toothbrush motor? I haven't. No, I've never, I've never been to um, time. Prison in LA, so. It's time. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I know anything about that either. But yeah, so I guess we're just wrapping up here. Okay. And yeah, so I'm gonna um, lay a beat down. He's gonna go over. It. Do it, yeah. What? <laughs> you got your bars ready? <laughs> <laughs> but we should. Oh, you know what we really need to mention? Mm-hmm. We need to mention the rally. Yep, that's right. Okay. <laughs> edit, edit that part out. Edit, edit, edit the. Edit all of me out. Damn it! I was hoping I could upload this today, but if there's extensive editing that I need to do, oh, then uh, no, no, just it's not extensive. Well, you okay. could leave it, but when he, my voice starts to the point where you grab the microphone. Okay. <laughs> he was not being a good ideologically sound comrade there. <laughs> he was like, I don't know when it starts. It's like bad, right? Bad comrade. No, no cohesion. <laughs> oh man. 
it's all good. So anyways, yes, uh, we, we do have the rally coming up. Um, super important. Uh, we're trying, we're, we're estimating about a thousand people will be showing up at the footsteps of Adeloupe. Um, yeah. The so, Pope, the Goldie, Gwenifi, I Mohon. And so it's a very simple message. Respect the Chamorro people. If you believe that the Chamorro people deserve to be respected, whether you're Chamorro or not, you know, you should come and join us on April 7th from 4 to 6 in front of Adeloupe. Mm-hmm. I mean, we want this to be a space where, you know, after all of the stuff that's going on, kind of attacking the place of the Chamorro, like this, these 212 square miles here and then, you know, the islands to the north, these, this is our homeland. And, you know, we're not... We're not advocating anything violent, but it's kind of like all of these people keep casually – these people, these government agencies just keep casually disrespecting us and saying you don't matter. And it's even at, at an interpersonal level too. Mm-hmm. This is why this rally is so important because the ruling has enabled um, racist rhetoric towards Chamorros and people – um, because we've been conditioned, not many people know how to feel about that. When when you have a settler um, on Facebook talking about how like, oh, there's no there's no pure Chamorros left. Uh, so what does that mean? Are you trying to erase my rights as a human being? Are you trying? Are you attacking me? Do I not exist to you? I'm right here. So that's why this rally is so important, right? Yeah, I think I think they should definitely impose purity tests in the United States. You have to be. Native American. (laughs) And so, but yeah, this this is why we need to be vigilant is that, as you said, Chamorros have been kind of, or this is where our our hospitality works against us, is that as much as somebody like Dave Davis or his attorneys may say that Guam is this horrible racist place in which sort of all of these people are being disenfranchised and being marginalized – that is simply not the experience of almost everybody on Guam. There may be some people who feel like Chamorros um, have some kind of prejudiced thoughts against Chukis or Filipinos or something like that. You know, and those things happen, those things exist. But any idea that what we have on Guam is akin to the Jim Crow South or sort of the, the worst parts of U.S. history is, is moronic. It's moronic. You know, Davis and his attorneys should should pick their own boogers more and eat them more. It may improve their ability to discern facts about the world around them or history. I mean, I understand that they that by making such a sort of a, a spectacularly salacious argument, like in court, you can kind of and in the media, you can try to latch, you can get people interested in it, but it's it's like ridiculous. And so, you know, this rally is just because Chamorros have have been so respectful of others for so long, like um, welcoming people into Guam. And there's there's nothing wrong with other people calling Guam home. But what we see now is we see just this willingness to erase who we are. Mm. You mentioned something the other day. Um, there is a some international law or constitutional law expert who was here, or it was in Tinian. And uh, he posted something on Facebook. You want to talk about that? Oh, it was Jonathan Turley. And so Jonathan Turley said something fascinating on Facebook. Um, He said, the Chamorro people 
are like the friendliest people in the world and they love to eat. <laughs> and if you have trouble becoming friends with a Chamorro, it is your fault, definitely, because they are like the friendliest people in the world. <laughs> and so it's, you know, you may find Chamorros that are jerks or assholes, but as a community and as a people, Guam is a generous and is a pretty welcoming and tolerant place. And and so, you know, at a minimum, do we deserve this type of disrespect? You know, do we deserve after centuries of colonization to be told your non-binding decolonization plebiscite should be interpreted in the most insane way possible so that you can be deprived of this right. Like, well, no, we shouldn't, be, we shouldn't be told that. We're not asking for a lot. We're asking for very little. We're just asking for this chance that this is our place in the world. And we're asking for the chance to make a choice about what happens to it after we have been denied that, that ability for so long. And to think then that there are some people in the world and here on this island who would dedicate their lives to denying us that choice, it's, it's really disgusting. Um, I mean, it, it shows, regardless of the ways in which sort of we can see so much hope and so, so much energy and so much beauty in human life, it is a reminder of sort of how twisted and cruel and, and ugly humans can be as well. Mm. <sighs> Yeah. On a good note, though, to end on a good note, <laughs> April 7th, 4 to 6 p.m., um, super important. Be there. We'll be there. Thousands of people be will there. be there. Um, be there. Yeah. This is going to be just our, our chance to just come together. There'll be speakers. There'll be music. There'll be information. Um, it's the perfect chance for us just to, to – for, for everybody who calls Guam home. Not just tomorrows, but everybody just come together and then just think, what is it that makes this place special in the world? It is the tomorrow people. It is this is kind of our this is our place in the world. We make this place unique. And so everyone can play a role in keeping the language alive, in keeping the culture vibrant, in keeping this place Itanuitsamoru. And so but it can't happen without that respect. And so that's why this is respect the Chamorro people. Biba. 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 All right. Ihinangaynya independent guahan. Para ba inafan mataknya yaman Chamorro. Para tatuli tati diretsota komo unnashon gihilutano. Gini minet gud niha yamanyanata. Jani guinezata nu ifamago umtamotna. Ina kekefan manungo. Dan na kekefanet dun todu i tautausiha ni manyasagagi ini na tano. Pero tanat letfet na idagwahan ni todu ini na senyata. Kosikisi niya tafan lakla maulik motna. Fanatsu, hita lakmon. <laughs>